Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Chad Pecknold is well known to First Things readers. He, he doesn't need any introduction, uh, although I'll do it anyway. He is professor of systematic theology at Catholic University in Washington, D.C., author of Christianity and Politics, uh, The Promise of Scriptural Reasoning, among other things. He delivered a lecture uh, a while back that I attended there in, in Alexandria entitled The Religious Nature of the City, which has been published, uh, and we want to talk about that. Uh, but first, uh, and, and, and another essay that he did on the same Substack project called Imago Dei as a Political Concept. But first, uh, Chad, first, welcome. And let me ask you um, about a few of the projects in which you yeah. are involved. Uh, first, you gave that lecture as a kind of inaugural event for an institute that you are starting at the Basilica there in Old Town, Alexandria. What is that? What is that project? Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much, Mark, for having me on. That's always a pleasure to be on your podcast. Um, and thank you so much for attending the lecture. We we decided we, as in the pastor of the Basilica of St. Mary's, Father Ed Hathaway, um, came to me, I guess, a year ago or so, asking about starting some sort of institute um, at the Basilica that would you know, highlight the faith in the public square. Um, not unlike what First Things does, is to, to highlight really smart uh, people uh, who can really illuminate the, uh, the, the signs of our times, but also help us understand history and understand the place of Christianity and Western civilization. And so we, we started kind of brainstorming about how I can contribute to that um, since my day job is, is teaching over across the river at Catholic U. And we decided that I would uh, come on to help found this Institute for Faith and Public Culture. There's a lot of institutes for faith and culture, and uh, that was one of the ideas kind of swimming around. Um, but we really wanted to emphasis not on, on a sort of privatized account of culture where people like to say that cultures, you know, the politics is downstream of culture, but then culture is somehow and you know entirely privatized. And so we we started talking about the idea of a public culture and the way in which the church has always been active in building up a public culture, the public culture of the family, the public culture of the town. You often see images of towns, and at the center of the town is a steeple. Um, the the, the church kind of looms large in uh, the history of political imagination, and so we wanted a, an institute that would kind of would kind of uh, highlight the way in which the the faith matters for 
the public square. And so my first lecture, Father Hathaway asked me if I'd speak on the relationship between cult and culture, not cultism, bad cults, but the idea of of the shrine or the altar as central to the city. And so I gave this I gave this lecture on the religious nature of the city to kind of kick off our our sequence of events. Uh, this this spring I'll I'll be also giving the a series uh, of reflections on Augustine's Confessions, and we're going to have oh uh, some famous speakers come speak at the institute, including this man named Mark Bauerlein. So to talk about his new book, so uh, we'll have Sora Bamari come uh, and other great people. So it's a way uh, for us to, um, in our small way in in Alexandria, Virginia, to sort of shine the light on. Uh, uh, of faith uh, on our city. So we're looking forward to that, and I'm grateful to be a part of it. Churches should perform that function. Cultural centers, centers of ideas. Absolutely. Uh, you know, neighborhood gatherings uh, where, you know, where, where, where words can be, can be exchanged, and we want them to follow from our belief, our faith. Uh, but yeah, br- let's bring, bring the public, the public issues uh, uh, to bear. I think it's a great thing that, that is that is happening there and we'll, we'll follow it closely. Uh, we'll, you know, you know what? I think we will, we'll try and post some things on, on our website, uh, for events Great. coming up at the, at the Basilica. So, uh, all right. The other activity is something you're doing on Substack, this post liberal yeah. order. First, of, <laughs> first of all, explain to our listeners, what is Substack? Well, I mean, uh, Substack is this um, platform, which they call a newsletter platform, but has really kind of uh, democratized, as they say, publishing, um, which, uh, you know, what's interesting about the Substack phenomena is, of course, there's thousands of people on there who just have a few readers. Um, But what's been interesting is to see the phenomenon of major writers, New York Times writers, moving from legacy institutions over to Substack and actually taking a lot of their readers there. And what, what the phenomena of Substack is, is that um, a really well curated um, Substack newsletter becomes like a web magazine that is, that gets a lot of traffic. And uh, for a while now, we uh, actually, you, you say we, who is part of this particular yeah. Substack, the post-liberal order? Who who are they besides yourself? Yeah, so it's just it's just four four of us professors. Um, we all we're all Catholic. Uh, we're all university professors. It's uh, Gladden Pappen, professor of political science at, at University of Dallas. Myself at Catholic U. Um, uh, Sarab, sorry, not Sarab. Sarab Omari is our friend, but not part of uh, the post-liberal order. Uh, Adrian Vermeule at Harvard Law and Patrick Deneen, a professor of political science at Notre Dame. And we decided because our ideas are kind of resemble each other in various ways. We we don't all think the same way about things. And indeed, we have disagreements amongst us. But uh, there's a kind of uh, uh, family resemblances between our ideas that we thought it would be really good to to kind of bounce ideas off each other in the public square. And, and uh, so we're kind of in daily conversation about ideas. Um, and we thought, well, let's start making some of that conversation public. 
And so we decided, well, we'll each, uh, we'll each write something once a week. Um, and that's taken off. And, uh, we, we called it post-liberal order because sort of two, a twofold set of reasons. One is that I think we all believe that liberal order in the classical sense, the kind of political philosophy that's provided the sort of operating system for what counts as right and left for a couple hundred years has failed in the famous phrase of, of Patrick Dinian's book, Why Liberalism Has Failed. It's failed and we're living in a post-liberal moment. Um, much of what counts as progressive totalitarian power is actually post-liberal. Um, and in another sense, um, asking the question, what will an, um, what will emerge that could actually be good for people? Is there an emergent order which will come after liberalism that uh, could be really good for human beings, could be good for families? We don't think that the, the sort of progressive totalitarian regime is good for people. We don't think it's good for individuals. We don't think it's good for families. We don't think it's good for nations um, and so on. Uh, and so it has, has this other sense of post-liberal in the sense we're looking for an emergent order and we're trying to give kind of descriptive power to uh, what we think is possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a subscriber model, right? I mean, one, one, yep, one, yep. one yep. actually and, subscribes and, to the way one would to a, to a magazine. That's right. That's right. And so we're, we, um, we have been, uh, we've only been operating for three months and our commitment was, uh, one of our major themes is the common good. Um, and so we want to make sure as much of our content is common to everybody for free. And so we're, we're putting as much free uh, material out as possible, uh, even when we move to paid subscriptions, which we will be doing very soon. Uh, we'll have some paid content, and, but a lot of free content. And we so, so we really hope that people will uh, go and uh, get a free subscription because with a free subscription you'll get a lot of good content, um, and then the paid subscription you're going to get a lot more from from us as as writers and as friends. So I think uh, we're very grateful for the number of subscriptions, the free subscriptions that we've gotten. But absolutely, Substack is built on paid subscriptions, and so we we will we will go to a paid uh, subscription model pretty soon. Your first entry there was entitled Imago Dei as a political concept. Uh, the argument right. touches upon sort of the liberal idea of, of dignity. Anyway, maybe, maybe I should let, let you give us the main argument of that. Well, argument. I mean, in, the, in a sense, um, that, was, that piece was uh, building off of a really important talk that uh, really the greatest living philosopher, Alistair McIntyre, gave at Notre Dame. Uh, which was really a critique of uh, human dignity. Um, not to say that, not to say that uh, Alistair McIntyre was dismissing human dignity. Absolutely not. Human dignity is obviously important. Um, it, but McIntyre's lecture showed just how deficient and deracinated the concept of human dignity has become in the modern period, and. I thought what was so powerful about it was that 
human dignity is a central political concept in liberalism, and it's a powerful political concept. But when you push on it in the way that McIntyre was pushing on it, it could give you the impression that you should just give up on human dignity, which is, would be terrible, right? And so one of the answers that, that McIntyre gives uh, is that what, what did the secularizing work? What did the deracinating of human dignity? And uh, one, of, one of the clues was the loss of ends that the human person was detached from teleology, detached from the ends of what is human dignity for? What's it ordered? What end is it ordered to? And when I heard that, I I realized, well, this is what happens when you detach human dignity from the Imago Dei. And so I wrote this essay um, really in in tribute, in response to McIntyre on um, Imago Dei as a political concept, right? Uh, that, that actually gives you human dignity, but it puts it on a kind of hierarchical scale, which is ordered to the highest end of being made in God's image and being elevatable to, to, uh, to heaven. And, and so that giving it that theological context struck me as, yeah, McIntyre has his finger on it. The, the problem is not human dignity per se, but this way in which, uh, and, and, and frankly, uh, a certain kind of liberal conservative tends to be the greatest champion of human dignity, um, but they, they tend to use it in this secularized way in which it's just this kind of inherent static, um, I mean, we use it in our we, we tend to use it in our own American tradition of inalienable. It's something that's, you know, uh, that, that's something that's inert, that doesn't have any movement that could never be effaced by sin or error or ignorance or anything um, and doesn't have an end. It can't be directed to anything higher than, than some baseline. And so I thought, well, this if, if we're going to think about an emergent order, we better have a better anthropology than that. And so what's a better anthropology for that that still actually retains the, the dignity of the human person? And so I wrote this piece on a, on a Thomistic account of uh, Imago Dei as a political concept. And um, I, I, think, I think that, in a sense, thinking through the questions of what's politically possible for the future, we have to do some of this kind of fundamental speculative thinking. Uh, we, don't, we don't always do that at political order, but uh, sometimes we're, I think we're going to need to do that because we have some concepts um, that have, uh, have been decoupled from the ends that make us happy, the ends that make a human being happy. And of course, being ordered to the highest good, that is God, uh, is going to raise people to the highest happiness. So that was the idea behind Imago Dei as a political concept. Like, we need a better anthropology, and we need that anthropology to have political force, and it needs to be theologically capacious. Do, do liberals suspect final ends because they think they're dangerous and can turn violent? Is that what's behind some of their... I, I, I think, I think, um, I think in, in a sense, they are... are they, they believe in final ends 
but they believe that there's no final, final end, as it were. There's only the final end that can be constructed by power. And so, in a sense, the, the progressive has a kind of prohibition, you know, Thomas Hobbes' account of, of how do you secure the final end. The progressive is perfectly happy with the final end, uh, but they don't actually think there's a true final end. There's only the final end that they can secure through power. Hmm. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. When we turn to the religious nature of the city, the lecture you gave, you begin with the hearth, the importance of the hearth. What what was that? Yeah, so so the the religious nature of the city piece um, uh, begins with uh, a premise, a claim that every city is religious by nature because the city is essentially a human product and that the human person is religious by nature. Um, and I obviously I think that for, for Christian reasons, and I get into that later, but I wanted to open first with the way in which that claim is totally uncontroversial for a pre-Christian, an ancient view of the city. And so I, I go into the, the work of uh, the famous work of the 19th century classicist, uh, Fustel de Coulonge, um, who, who wrote, writes this book, The Ancient City. And, and he opens his book with the same thing I opened my essay with, is this image of the Vesta, this sacred fire that burns on the hearth of every Greek and Roman home, and that the Vesta is this living flame of the the domestic religion. And so I, I go through Fustel's uh, uh, work on this uh, about how, in a sense, everything about the ancient world, uh, the home is constructed around this Vesta, this sacred flame. The the cemeteries are structured around it. Um, property rights are structured around it, um, and the city is structured around a civic religion. And and from the the ancient evidence, I, I I arrive at the conclusion that this fits with what we know that the human person is just naturally religious. Now, of course, their religion is false, right? They're worshiping false gods in ancient Greece and and, and Rome, um, but the structural inclination to build the altar is just ineradicable. We just cannot not do that. The city is going to have an altar. And so I, I use that kind of ancient evidence then to sort of leap into to St. Augustine, and, and who basically argues the same thing, is that the city is going to have an altar. It's just like the human heart's going to have an altar. Uh, it's going to be religious. So is the city going to have an altar. And so for Augustine, then, the central question is not whether the city should be secular or religious, but whether the religious nature of the city uh, 
result in having true religion or false religion at its center. And so that that's the 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 kind of untrue religion dimension of Augustine's thought is that's that's the key desiderata for any city is the religion that that is at its center, true or false. Because if it's if it's false, it's gonna look a lot like the progressive tyranny that we see around it. It's gonna fragment the family, it's gonna destroy cities, it's gonna disrupt the workplace, it's going to uh, dissipate nations. But if you have true religion at the heart of a city, it's gonna have this integrative power. It's going to make things connect and um, it's going to lead to greater flourishing. It's not gonna eradicate sin, but it's gonna give you the resources for healing sin. and. Uh, so th- that's at the heart of the essay. Towards the end of the essay, I kind of go into some practical dimensions uh, in which how this would look in America, indeed how it has looked in the past in America. But that's the theoretical heart of of that uh, of that essay at Postable Order. Uh, Augustine uh, heard people blame the sack of Rome, the loss of the city, to the the wrong religion, Christianity. Uh, what was his answer to that claim? Yeah, I mean, in a sense, it's it's the the answer uh, of look at what your religion did to you. Um, look at the way in which your gods uh, basically performed immorality uh, and held that up as because he he's, he thinks of 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 the stage plays that he sees in Rome and many of the stage plays sort of enacted uh, soap operas between the gods and in which people, the average Roman would see um, all, all the gods engage in adultery and various immoral acts with one another. And he said, like, well, this is just what you would expect from false religion is it's going to actually corrupt the souls of those who view it. It's going to do something inside of them that, that disorders them, and and in a sense, he he's really he's really making a kind of uh, almost phenomenological or practical argument that just look what it does, look what bad religion does, and it leads to this, as he famously says, this torrential downhill rush into immorality that results from bad religion, um, and we see that today. I think that was a powerful movement in in your essay when you talked about Augustine describing Roman spectacles, right? The games, the the entertainments. And the what when you watch these things, you're you're not you're not separate. You know, you you don't you're not the disinterested observer who can take it or leave it. You watch it, then you forget it. It it actually it becomes involved in you yeah. and, and then you brought that forward to to today and what we see in in our society uh, how did how did the advent of Christ change this the ancient city yeah I mean I mean two, two things but one, one on the relationship between the soul and the city Augustine is simply making a platonic point here it's a point that's in in Plato is that Men become like their regimes. They become like what the city values and holds sacred. Um, and so if the city values and holds sacred things that are 
disordered, then the soul's going to conform to that, and it's going to be corrosive and corruptive, and it's this vicious cycle. Um, I think what Augustine's Augustine's great insight here is that, especially in response to the sack of Rome and the charge that that some elite pagans made, which is that Christianity was to blame for the weakening of Rome. Um, his his response was, well, no, actually what human beings need to do is they need to gaze on something that's true and good and beautiful, indeed the highest truth and the highest good and the and the and beauty itself, the form of beauty, and that's Jesus Christ. And that that moving from it's not it's not that the city needs to not have an altar. It's that the vesta of the home and of the civic altar needs to be lit with the flame of divine charity. It needs to be lit with something that is a greater spectacle, spectacle of, of the heavenly communion of saints, and that this is going to be better for both the soul and the city. Now, I, I think there's a kind of Augustinian who reads that and says, well, this is just what he means. This is why we have to convert hearts. You know, this is why we have to convert individuals. But I think that's to miss Augustine's point, which is, this union of the soul and the city and this the, the way in which it matters what altar the city is oriented around, that's what is fundamentally uh, uh, going to have effects on a civic people. And, 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 and in a sense, he's perfectly aware that the city might erect temples and altars to false gods, but that he's also perfectly happy to say that the best thing is for a society, for a political community to order itself to the true God, because that's going to be better for the souls of the people. That's going to be better for the city. Yeah. When you were talking, you made a statement that stuck with me at the lecture. You noted on, and that follows directly from what, what you just said. You noted that there is a, a liberal assumption that if we don't have vigorous official state neutrality yeah. relative to all religious things, we will end up with religious violence. And you said that's that's a myth. Is this a core liberal belief? Is this one of the fundamentals of, of liberal dogma? Absolutely. There, there's, I mean, many of your readers will, will know William Kavanaugh, who a long time ago, uh, probably wrote once in a while for first things, but um, Bill Kavanaugh wrote a wonderful book called The Myth of Religious Violence, um, published by Oxford, I think. Um, very important book because he, he uh, persuasively and patiently goes through the evidence about how crucial this myth of religious violence, what, what the so-called, I mean, we have to call them so-called now. If you read Kavanaugh's book, you can no longer call them wars of religion in earnest. Um, the so-called wars of religion were really nation-state wars. They were wars between early nation-states that were using um, religion often as a pretext, um, and, and that fundamentally we know that religion was not the cause of the wars of religion. It was not even really... Um, as central to any of the arguments that were made during the wars of religion. But the liberal myth is that in, in order for us to ha have a kind of 
peaceful, liberal, pluralistic order, what we need is religious neutrality in which the the altar is empty. <laughs> you know, if you go to the middle, the center of, of liberal order, the liberal wants that there to be no altar or to have nothing on the altar. Um, and I think what we have seen, I mean, this is one of the insights of, of the post-liberal, is that that religious neutrality is absolutely impossible. It's going to, the, the, um, the, the altar is going to get filled with something. Uh, people, as Bob Dylan said, people are going to worship someone. And that's true for the city, too. Uh, so I think, I think that that myth of religious violence was, was very useful for a, a number of years a couple hundred years in kind of giving giving credence to the idea that we must kind of enforce uh, religious neutrality but in some ways even the myth of even the myth of religious neutrality is something that we only very recently bought into in this country maybe since the 60s because you know if you look to mid-century or earlier in American history, America is not religiously neutral. It's actually powerfully Protestant and Christian. And, uh, and before the 18th century founding, uh, even more so Catholic, uh, when we think about all the famous Catholic cities in America. But um, America has never really been committed to the idea of religious neutrality, say, uh, not until we sort of caught up with our own enlightenment ideas uh, in, in the 20th century were we, were we really committed to the idea of religious neutrality, not in practice. I think this is why Tocqueville would always say America's lived better than their ideas. Um, I think that's true. Now, now we've caught up to our ideas and our ideas are bad. What, what were uh, blue laws and what do you want to do with them? Yeah, so... You know, the, the challenge that's always put to us by critics, um, well, you know, the, the, the critic of the post-liberal order is always, you know, kind of saying that we're, we're just pie in the sky, speculative, always coming up with fancy ideas, but that really, at the end of the day, we're not practical. It's not realistic, you know. Um, and so I think, there, I think there's always, you know, this... Um, this presupposition that we don't have any practical ideas or that it's unworkable in America. And so I wanted to show the ways in which actually everything that I was talking about in the religious nature of the city and everything that we do at, at, um, I can't speak for everybody, but I think, uh, post-liberal order is, uh, uh, keen on overcoming what Adrian Vermeil calls the futility trope. Um, that that things are never going to change and and that nothing new can happen in America. I wanted to kind of give footholds for for these ideas that uh, we actually have uh, enacted even in our very recent history. And and one really potent practical idea is the idea of Sunday closing laws. Um, and I mentioned that this is relevant for Europe too. In 2009, the the German Supreme Court upheld. Sunday closing laws. Uh, and in America, there's a long legal tradition, a huge legal tradition upholding the constitutionality of, of blue laws, of these Sunday closing laws in which we 
make it a law that no business shall operate. Uh, I mean, obviously hospitals can be open and certain essential services, but we're, we shut down commerce for a day, one day a week. Um, and that's good for everybody. That's good for the worker. Um, you know, labor unions used to be the champions of this because, you know, the, the labor unions were, were the guys who said, hey, we, we're the ones who gave you the weekend. Um, and, and that's true. So in a sense, the, the Sunday closing laws are a way in which we could actually find common cause with people don't go to church. But also that a Sunday closing law um, does emphasize as well as the importance of rest from commerce. It emphasizes the need for community, the need for family, and the need for worship. Uh, and so it was just a way of like cracking open that futility trope to say, well, it's not so long ago that we did this here in America, in our towns. The project is called The Post-Liberal Order. It can be found at Substack. Chad Pecknold, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.